So we're coming to Luke chapter 11 into chapter 12 under the subject of end times. Uh, I was listening this week. I go for a, a walk some mornings, and I always have the earphones in, uh, listening to people like Sinclair Ferguson, Alistair Begg, Dominic Smart, people like that. And I was listening to Alistair Begg as he was preaching on the end of chapter 11. And he said at the beginning, uh, he, he read this passage again again, just couldn't understand it. And he was speaking to Alec Mateer. I think Alec since passed away since a few years ago. Alec Mateer is one of the best Old Testament scholars that there has been in recent time. And he was speaking to Alec Mateer on the phone. He says, look, I'm trying to do uh, Daniel 11. He says, I can't make any uh, sense of it. And uh, all Alec Mateer says, we'll read Sinclair Ferguson's book uh, and Sinclair Ferguson's commentary. And that's what I did. <laughs> and uh, uh, so anything that's good, hopefully the help of God's Spirit has partly come. And I do recommend if you want to study the book of Daniel, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's commentary is one of the best I think there is on it. So we're thinking tonight about end times. And as we're saying, the big message running through the whole book of Daniel is that all that goes on in this world and all that goes on in our lives, God is in control of it. And in the end, in His time, He works things out for His purposes, for the good of His people, and for the deliverance of His people. Now, remember, chapters 10 to 12 are a unit. Chapter 10 focuses on the spiritual battle. Daniel has this interaction with this heavenly messenger who appears to be the Son of God. and It speaks about this battle with the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, which seemed to represent fallen angels, evil spirits. So it speaks about the spiritual battle which we don't see. Uh, chapter 11 brings the action down to earth. As to Daniel, it is revealed what's going to happen in the forthcoming centuries. Uh, he is getting this vision about 500 years, a bit more, before the time of Jesus. And he's told about the future kings of Persia for them, and then the rise of Alexander the Great, this great Greek king, and then how after Alexander would die, the kingdom would be divided into four, and there would be conflict between two of these kings, described as the king of the north, based in Syria, and the king of the south, based in Egypt, and that would be ongoing. And then it speaks about a particularly evil character who appears, one of the kings of the north, based in Syria. And this was a very wicked king called Antiochus Epiphanes, who would live about 150 years before Jesus was born. And he would stop the worship in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice to Zeus, the false god. Now, last week, if you were very sharp, you'll notice we finished the teaching in verse 35, when the chapter goes on for another 10 verses, and the story of Antiochus, it may appear, I stopped a wee bit early and didn't follow it through to the end of the chapter. Well, the reason why I stopped at the end of verse 35 is I believe that what comes from verse 36 on is not actually spoken about Antiochus, but it's been spoken about another evil character who is still to come. Now, there are a number of reasons I believe this is true. 
partly because Sinclair Ferguson says it's true. Uh, that's one of them. But there are two good reasons why it's true, because the prophecy in verses 36 to 45 speaks of events which never appear to have happened in regards to Antiochus, where the events leading up unto that, uh, history amazingly speaks of the, how they did happen. But what happens next doesn't seem to speak about what happened in Antiochus' life. And the other reason is that Jesus, in Matthew 24, when He spoke about Daniel's prophecy, He spoke of Daniel's prophecy not just speaking about things that would happen in Antiochus' day in the past, but he spoke of Daniel's prophecy as speaking about things even still to come after the days of Jesus. There in chapter 11, verse 31, it speaks about the abomination that causes desolation. This is how offering that sacrifice to Zeus was done in the temple by Antiochus. But in Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of that event as something that was also still to take place in the future. This is one of the things we need to understand about prophecy. Prophecy can have different layers to it. Take, for example, the Psalms, which maybe we're more familiar with. The Psalms speak of events in the life of David. The Psalms are written by David. They speak of events that would happen to him. But the Psalms also speak forward to Christ. And some of the Psalms are clearly not speaking about David, but about Jesus. Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. It's a Psalm that's not speaking about David because David's body was put in a tomb and would rot. It's speaking forward to Jesus. So, prophecy can have different layers. It can have a fulfillment near, but also a fulfillment later on. It's a wee bit like climbing a mountain or climbing hills. And you're climbing up a hill, and all you see is the summit, the peak in front of you. And you're looking at a prophecy, and it's all pointing to that summit, that peak in front of you, which is Antiochus. But when you get to the top, you see there's another peak, there's another summit beyond that. It's further away. And that's the way prophecy works. Now, if what I'm saying is true, what we have at the end of this chapter is a prophecy not about Antiochus, but about this future evil figure who is to come. And that leads us to our first point tonight, which is the prophecy of the Antichrist. Many people have tried to identify who this evil person is at the end of this chapter. Some have thought of it as different Roman emperors. And some have thought of it as other particularly evil characters down through society, down through the generations. It's someone who is evil personified. But ultimately, this person is the Antichrist. In 1 John 2, and in 2 Thessalonians 2, it speaks of an evil person who's going to come towards the end of time. An evil person who will rule and who will hate the church. An evil person who will stand against all that Jesus stands for. Sometimes called the Antichrist, sometimes called the man of sin. This person who is evil personified. 
Now, there are a number of things we can see in this passage about this Antichrist. We see, first of all, that he is a man of pride. Look there at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay, not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, this person who doesn't care even about other gods, that, didn't, that wasn't true of Antiochus. He worshipped the false gods of his day. But here is a man who is filled with pride, who exalts and magnifies himself above everything and anything. This is what evil is. It is wanting all the glory, all the honor on self. So, this Antichrist will be a man of pride. Secondly, he'll be a man of blasphemy. It says there in verse 36 that he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods, the one true God. His pride blinds him from understanding the majesty, the glory of God that he is dealing with. He somehow thinks that he can compete with God. And you know, people lose sight of just the holiness the glory of God, and trivialize God. I, was, I, I like to watch things on YouTube, uh, old clips. And one of the things I like to watch on YouTube are old clips of snooker matches and things. But I came across one this week which really saddened me and disappointed me. Uh, it was Steve Davis. Now, I never liked Steve Davis when he played snooker. I like him as a commentator. I like him as a person now. But uh, he was doing an exhibition, and he was sharing this joke about God. And it just showed he just hadn't a clue of the God that he's dealing with. People who blaspheme God, they just have lost sight of how God is on a totally different level. Thirdly, this Antichrist will be a man of power, verses 38 to 40. He honors the symbols of power, such as fortresses, it speaks in the verse 39 how he gives authority to others. He enables others to rule. He, he releases others to rule under his guidance. This Antichrist will be a person of tremendous control. But he is a man of frustration in verses 44 to 45. It speaks of a battle. I think it's a symbolic of the the desire of this Antichrist to rule and control anything and everything, but he doesn't succeed. It speaks of him attacking, and then because of the reports that he hears, he has to break off the attack. He can't finish the attack. He has to retreat. And then it speaks of him dying, coming to his end, his desires failing to be accomplished. So, a man of pride a man of blasphemy, a man of power, but a man of frustration. 
This is no easy ride being a Christian. We live in a world of evil. Never lose sight of that. But let's be encouraged. The second thing we see here is the prophecy of God's victory as we move into chapter 12. Now, first of all, it is a prophecy about distress. If you look there in verse 1, it says halfway down, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. So it speaks of a time of trouble like never before, suffering. And there was great suffering in the days of Antiochus, but this statement is referring to even greater distress that will come upon God's people in the last days. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks about this. In verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then he says in verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No one never will be. So he's speaking about a time of wickedness, a time of suffering, which is beyond what has been experienced before. That is what Jesus is saying will accompany the Antichrist, this man of evil. In Daniel chapter 12 there and verse 7, it speaks of the shattering of the power of the holy people. The day will come when the power of the Antichrist will appear to be so strong that it will appear that the church of God is finished. It will not be finished, but it will appear to be finished. The shattering of the power of the holy people. But our next point is we see it's a prophecy about God's love and care. Look at the beginning of verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Michael is the great archangel who leads the army of angels. He fights on behalf of the people of God. And Michael in the Bible becomes particularly active in the days of distress, showing that God is with his people. God is watching over his people. God will carry his people through these difficult days. Now, there's so much that we don't understand about these angelic creatures. But it's such a wonderful thing. It's a comforting thing to know they are there. They're there to, to watch over, to protect, to care for, to minister to the people of God. You think of when Peter, when he struck the high priest's ear and how Jesus says, and put it away. Do you not realize I could call down all these legions of heaven, all these legions of angels to fight for him? And those angels are there for the people of God. And so while there is terrible evil, there's the Antichrist, the forces of evil who are against God's people. Greater are they who are for us than they who are against us because of these angelic creatures who are there. And then thirdly, it is a prophecy about resurrection. 
for God's people, the resurrection at the end of this world will be the ultimate deliverance. But it's not a deliverance for all. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. At the end of the time, all who have died, the many who have died, will be raised from their graves. For some, the resurrection will bring great joy, bring great glory as they receive everlasting life. Look at verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Uh, what's he talking about, those who turn many to righteousness? I think he's talking about those who've been engaged in the work of seeing souls saved for Christ. They will shine brightly in the glory to come as a reward for their faithfulness to the Lord. But for others, the resurrection will be a time of distress, suffering, and shame. It speaks there in verse 2 that some shall rise indeed to shame and everlasting contempt. Hell will be a place of no dignity, no respect. Even sinners who in this life will be good friends, in that world they will despise each other because all that is good is removed from them. Evil consumes them. And we can see what makes the difference here between these two groups at the resurrection. If you look at the end of verse 1, it says, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, who are these people who are written in the book who will be raised to everlasting joy and glory? What is this book? Jesus told his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. And in Revelation 20, it tells us that those whose names were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Those who are destined for glory, those who trust in Christ, those who are the elect, those who are the redeemed people of God, their name is in the book. And their name is in the book, and they will be safe forever. Evil will come, evil will do its worst, but they will be secure. Why? Their name is in the book. Sometimes you're maybe going to want to go somewhere, and uh, you're not sure if, you're, if you actually, your name was given in or something, and you ring up and say, have you got a reservation or whatever? And they say, yes, your name is in the book. The most crucial thing of all, what will affect our eternity? Is your name in the book? The Lamb's book of life it is. Those who are trusting in Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away their sin and to save them. Is your name 
in the book. So it's a prophecy about distress, but a prophecy about God's loving care, a prophecy about resurrection. And then finally, the purpose of the prophecy. As we come to the last part of this chapter 12, there are a number of things about the purpose. First of all, it is to increase wisdom. Look there at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shall shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, this phrase, you will close and seal up the scroll, it speaks about the completion of the prophecy, but also the importance of keeping the prophecy safe for future reference. It speaks there about people will look here and there for knowledge. People will run all over the place trying to get wisdom. But the wisdom is to be found in the Word of God. If you want to understand what is happening in the world around us today, if you want to understand what is happening in your life, go to the book. You will understand more about what's happening in the world by reading the Bible than by reading a newspaper or looking at the BBC or Sky. Go to the Bible. That's where wisdom… And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to understand and to navigate this life in a God-honoring way. And that wisdom comes from the book. The purpose of this prophecy it's not to work out every detail. It's not to work out all the times and so forth. The purpose is that we can be wise in the midst of whatever we face. Secondly, it's to increase purity. And despite these amazing revelations about the future which have been given to Daniel, there's still much that he, he doesn't understand. This encourages me. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome <coughs> excuse me, of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And the reply here is interesting, as if God is saying, <coughs> Daniel, I'm telling you no more. There's more you want to find out, but no, I'm not telling you. I am revealing enough so that you can keep trusting me. You can be faithful in your duty. It's not for you to work out every little detail about how this is all going to work out. What you're to work out is I'm in control, and you need to be faithful to me in the midst of all that's happening. Look there in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. There's a division here between those who, in response to the truth, in response to these great world events that will happen, there are those who will purify themselves, and there are those who will just go on in wickedness. And in many ways, the prophecy is sifting people, it's testing people. First John 3 and 3 says, everyone who has this hope in him and Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. So, the knowledge that there are difficult days ahead, but the knowledge that God's people will be delivered and brought to this everlasting glory in the resurrection, 
It's to increase their purity, to increase their single-minded devotion to Christ. And the third thing is to increase hope. Look there at verse 6. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a times that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end all things would be finished. And then go on in verse 11, and it says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now, the abomination that causes desolation refers to what happened in Attagus Day, the, the statue of Zeus set up in the temple, also, what would happen in AD 70 when the Romans would destroy the temple and set up an altar, but also what the Antichrist would do at the end of time. But what do we make of this phrase? It will be a time, times, and half a times. What do we make of the 1290 days and the 1335 days speaking about? What do we to understand by this? Let me quote to you from Stuart. Olyot in his commentary. At 30 days to the month, 1,290 days equals three and a half years, plus one month. I have no idea what it means. This does not make me ashamed, for I am confident that you do not understand it either. But this I know, whatever comes upon us, we are in the hands of God. No days come upon the church of Christ without divine appointment. God has set a limit on those days, and they will not continue for one day longer than the limit he has set. And so the time, times, and half a times, it refers to about three and a half years, the 1290 days, the 1338 days, it's saying these things will happen for a definite period of time determined by the Lord. And they will not last one day longer than God has determined. And God's prophecy is not for us to work out dates and times, but rather to show us that God is in control, that the times are in His hands, that in the days of distress, He's in charge. Jesus said of those days, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. When it comes to suffering, whether it's the experiences in our own life or whether it's the experience of God's people in this world, God knows exactly what His people can endure. He knows exactly what His people need. And God will not cause His people to go through one minute suffering more than what his perfect plan has ordained. There are difficult days ahead for the church, 
but we are not to fear. Christ is in control. Christ is working out His, his timetable. Uh, it's lovely just to, what we heard a few weeks ago from Gary, just about the situation there in Romania. How, it, just to see all these different people God had in the right place at the right time for His work to be carried on. God has a plan. It is a perfect plan. God is in control. And these difficult days would not last a moment lo- longer than God ordains. This prophecy creates great hope for the people of God. Suffering is just for a time, and then there's glory. But let's end just a final wee word for Daniel. Verse 13, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Basically, what Daniel has been told is, Daniel is now an old man. Remember, he was a a fellow who was 12, 13, 14 in chapter 1. He's now an old man in his 80s. Daniel, just keep being faithful. And there's a lot of place for you. God has a home for you. God has a place prepared for you. God will bring you out of this suffering. God will bring you through these trials. You have a place. Your body will rise transformed. You'll be one of the stars that will be shining. God has His place for you. Think of the words of Jesus. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He will bring His people out of all suffering, out of all evil, to everlasting joy, everlasting glory. Amen. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. And Father, there are things we don't understand. There are things about dates and times. There's imagery here, Father, we don't grasp. But help us to get the main message that you're the God who's in control. You're the God who has your angels led by Michael who fight on behalf of your people who serve your people, who care for your people. And Lord, you will bring your people through evil days and bring your people to everlasting glory. May that be our joy. May that be our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.